0: Section eighteen of the end of the Middle Age, twelve seventy three to fourteen fifty three by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter nine, Italy, thirteen eighty two to fourteen fifty three, Part two. Despite the loss of Padua, the Duke of Milan had made extraordinary progress, and when the fifteenth century began, Florence was engaged in a struggle with this formidable rival, which threatened her very existence, since she was more and more isolated and cut off from all trade communications. Despair and exhaustion were weakening Florentine resistance, when she was saved from destruction by the sudden death of her enemy from plague. A comet which appeared at the time was regarded by the vainglorious duke as the signal of his end, 1402. I thank God, he said, that he has given in the heavens a sign of my summons that may be known to all men. The death of John Galeazzo threw the duchy into anarchy and ended his schemes for the kingdom of northern Italy. None of his successors were equal to such a task. The vast dominions collected with so much labor were now divided between two young sons of the dead duke, while his widow Catherine was regent. But she speedily alienated everyone by the aimless cruelties which she thought would do instead of strong rule, and the condottieri, more numerous and powerful than ever before, took advantage of the general disorder and began to seize towns and lands for their own use. Filippo Maria, the younger son eventually established his supremacy. The elder, Gian Maria, whose unreasoning atrocities proclaimed him practically a madman, having been murdered by the Milanese nobles in 1412. Filippo married a woman twenty years his senior, the widow of Facino Cane, a general who had annexed certain important towns which were thus regained. He discovered the merits of Carmaniola, a simple soldier, and made him his commander-in-chief. He regained Milan, which had been taken when his brother was murdered and restored the shattered duchy. Filippo Maria Visconti, who ruled from 1412 to 1447, though not without ability, was a feeble copy of his father. He was far weaker, always suspicious and afraid of decided measures. John Galeazzo had been a coward. He shunned arms and shrieked at a thunderstorm, but no personal fear seemed to affect his purposes or awaken his conscience. Filippo was more of a coward all around. He dared not see his soldiers. He shrank from the very mention of death. He was always expecting treachery and would receive no visitors." Part of his withdrawal from sight may have been due to his extreme ugliness, which made him dislike publicity. Yet with all his timidity, he was still a Visconti in cruelty. He did not hesitate to get rid of his blameless wife as soon as every advantage had been gained from the match, and his people were still tortured and oppressed. The chief event of the 15th century in North Italy was the fierce struggle which raged between Milan and Venice. Venice all this while had not been idle. After the War of Chioggia had practically established her superiority over Genoa, she had been turning her attention more and more to extension on the mainland. The first foe with whom she was thus brought into conflict was the Lord of Padua, and on this account, she had actually joined with John Galliazzo in his attack on the Carrarezi, and was given Treviso as her share of the spoils. The death of John Galeazzo brought Venice and the restored state of Padua once more into rivalry, since each coveted the same portions of the dead man's territory. In this quarrel ended the life of the gallant Francesco Carrara, whose early career we have traced carried a captive to Venice. He was murdered in prison, defending himself to the last. The fall of this family left the Venetian Republic, master of Padua, Vicenza, Verona, and the surrounding districts, and a most important power in northern Italy. New dangers followed the new acquisitions made by Venice. The purchase of Dalmatia involved her in war with Hungary. The Paduan territories excited the jealousy of Milan. For some time, a war party and a peace party had been disputing in Venice, where, in fourteen twenty three the matter was brought to a head by an appeal from Florence for help against the Duke of Milan, and a threat that failing help, she would throw herself on to his side and make him king of Italy. at last, after much hesitation, the new Doge Francesco Foscari induced the Republic to declare war fourteen twenty five An alliance was formed with Florence and Caramagnola, the famous Condottieri, alienated by his former master, Filippo of Milan, was placed at the head of the Venetian forces. This war between Venice and Milan was one between great Condottieri. Opposed to Caramagnola was Piccinino and Malatesta, and most frequently Sforza for he had his own game to play and changed sides when it seemed best for the success of his policy. Francesco Sforza was one of the most striking figures of his day. His father, the first to take up the trade of war, and found the dynasty, was a peasant of Cotilonia, a man of enormous size and strength. In 1380 he was invited by some passing soldiers struck by his appearance to join their ranks. He flung his pickaxe into an oak tree. If it fell, he would go on working. If it stayed, he would join the troop. No pick returned. He took to the soldier's trade and was given the nickname of Sforza or the Violent. He became a warrior of great renown, and we have already heard of him fighting in Naples, in the Papal States, and elsewhere, besides acquiring territorial possessions of his own. His chief source of strength lay in his army, and the devotion which his followers always felt for him. The manner of his death helps to explain his influence over them. He lost his life fording a swift river, into which he had returned to encourage his men, after having already crossed in safety himself. Seeing a young page overpowered by the current, he stooped to save him, fell from his horse, and utterly unable to swim in his heavy armor was swept down by the flood before anyone could reach him. His son Francesco took command in his place and became his equal in valour and warlike fame. Now, this younger Sforza was aiming at a principality of his own, and the son of a simple peasant was the recognised suitor for the hand of Bianca, an illegitimate daughter of Filippo of Milan himself. At the opening of the war, all went well for Venice, and Brescia and Bergamo were added to her territories but little by little the conduct of Carmagnola gave rise to the suspicion that he was not doing his best, that he was either secretly favoring the enemy or that at least he was prolonging the war by his inactivity as useful for his own interests. The government at last could stand it no longer. The general was invited to Venice nominally for a consultation, and after being splendidly entertained, was suddenly arrested and sentenced to death by a special court. 1432. Other generals were soon found to take his place, and with varying success the war dragged on until the death of Filippo Maria in 1447 made a sudden change in the whole situation, for with him ended the male line of the Visconti. The question now arose, how should Milan be governed? The Milanese themselves proclaimed a republic, but there were plenty of claimants for the duchy. Sforza was married to Filippo's daughter and had long been planning to secure his inheritance. Venice would gladly have seized the opportunity of advancing at her rival's expense. Charles of Orleans asserted his rights as son of Valentine Visconti and grandson of Gian Galeazzo. Eventually, Sforza having gained the support of Cosimo de' Medici, who preferred to see him rather than Venice, master of Milan, solved the difficulty by besieging the town, and the Milanese, divided between fear of him and hatred of Venice, which might have helped them, surrendered to the formidable soldier and recognized him as their duke. 1450. The Venetians had lost a great opportunity, and they could do nothing against the new ruler by force of arms. In 1454, the long struggle was ended by the Peace of Lodi, which deprived Venice of her latest conquests and gave her the frontier of 1428. A few words must be said concerning the domestic history of the Venetian Republic during this period. Its chief feature was the decline of any real authority in the hands of the Doge and the growing supremacy of the Council of Ten. For some time past, the ducal office had been becoming more and more an empty honor, and the theory that he was the delegate of the people little but a picturesque pretense. Originally the people had been really consulted in the election, and though this had turned into a formal sanction, it was not until 1414 that the old words were omitted, "'This is your doge, and it please you,' and the new ruler was presented to his subjects with a bald announcement, "'Your doge,' The history of Francesco Foscari, the first doge to be proclaimed in this manner, illustrates clearly the real character of the office and its complete lack of authority. His son, Jacopo, suspected of taking bribes and bestowing offices, was tortured and banished by the ten. Recalled once, he was again tried, again tortured, and again banished, his father refusing to interfere in his favor when the state decreed his punishment. Foscati, worn out and broken by grief, began to take less active share in public life, whereupon the all-powerful ten demanded his resignation, 1457. In vain the doge pointed out that such an order could only proceed from the great council. The ten remained immovable, and Foscati left the palace, submissive to the will of the real rulers of the city. So ends our period for Milan and Venice. In the former, Visconti tyranny has merely given place to the despotism of the Sforzas. The latter has apparently come victorious out of the war, with increase of territory and plenty of riches and splendor for the moment, but there are rocks ahead. Dangers are threatening from Turks on the east, from Italian rivals in the west, and from loss of her far-famed commerce and wealth." Which dwindled after the discovery of a passage round the Cape of Good Hope opened a new trade route for the vessels of Europe. We have seen in an earlier chapter that the government of Florence at the close of the 13th century was very democratic, largely, that is, in the hands of the people. As time went on, the upper classes became more and more dissatisfied at the limitations on their power and the wealthy burghers determined to assert their authority. In 1378, a rising of the Chompi, as the lowest classes of all were called, gave opportunity for a reaction in the opposite direction, and little by little the government fell into the hands of an oligarchy. A small number of leading citizens gained possession of all the chief offices, and by skillful management of the scrutinies were able to keep themselves in power, until Florence was far from possessing a democratic government. The rule of this oligarchy was at first most successful. Florence held her own against Milan, increased her commerce, and extended her territories. The conquest of Pisa in especial gave her access to the sea and raised hopes of naval enterprises. Then followed a period of discontent and failure. The people, excluded from power, began to murmur, and especially the lower middle classes, who were growing in wealth and felt bitterly their exclusion from office. The weight of taxation, also necessary for carrying on the government, was a constant source of complaint. But above all, the oligarchy itself began to split up into hostile family groups, jealous of each other's power and intriguing for their own supremacy. Of these, The most important were the Albizzi and the Medici. Renaldo degli Albizzi headed the narrow oligarchy, which controlled the government. The Medici, rich bankers and money-changers, came to be allied with the lower classes, whose favor they won, partly by generous expenditure of their vast wealth. Giovanni de' Medici was looked up to as popular champion against the party in power, and he advocated fairer and better distributed taxation, but no active steps against the oligarchy were taken during his lifetime. On his deathbed he gave much good advice to his son Cosimo, his successor in wealth, and more than his successor in power. Be compassionate to the poor, and assist them with your alms. To the rich be gracious and obliging, especially if in honest adversity. Let your counsel be friendly, not dictatorial, and be not rendered arrogant by public honour or popular applause in fourteen thirty three an unsuccessful war for the conquest of Lucca rendered still more unpopular the party in power and Rinaldo degli Albizzi, feeling his authority insecure and dreading Medician influence, secured the arrest and banishment of Cosimo and his brother Lorenzo and the exclusion of the whole family from public office. The tide soon turned, however, Rinaldo was unpopular, and in the following year, in his turn, was banished, and Cosimo recalled, with the greatest honor and signs of rejoicing, 1434. This was a great event in Florentine history, for it marks the foundation of Medician ascendancy, Cosimo slowly but surely made himself the chief authority in the city, although he never posed as official ruler, nor did he alarm the citizens by outward pomp and ceremony. He avoided offending the lower people, and endeavoured as far as possible to level class distinctions, and to favour no single faction in the state. His great ability enabled him to establish a despotism which was all the stronger for being disguised. And from this time, the foreign and domestic policy of Florence was really in his hands. The rule of Cosimo at home was very different from that of other Italian tyrants, such as the Visconti in Milan, for example. He aimed at complete power for himself and his dynasty, but he achieved this by influence rather than open rule, by intrigue rather than by violence, and by money, not by the dagger. His immense wealth was a great weapon in his hands, and if he wished to punish an enemy, he did so by ruining him with taxes instead of by arrest, torture, or death. His despotism on the whole was based upon popular support. All this does not imply that Cosimo was unselfish and scrupulous. Nothing was allowed to stand in his way as he said himself. States are not to be preserved by paternosters— but he was averse to violence and would never have desired unnecessary cruelties. Comine, writing after his death, says, His authority was soft and amiable, and such as is necessary for a free town. In foreign affairs, Cosimo aimed at maintaining a balance of power, at not, that is, allowing any Italian state to advance to such an extent as to threaten the welfare of his own. Thus he was bound at first to adopt a policy of hostility toward Milan and the ambitions of the Visconti, and this led to an alliance with Venice, although there was little love lost between Florentines and Venetians. Again, when Filippo Maria took up the cause of Alfonso in Naples, Florence threw her weight onto the side of René. In 1447, when the Duke of Milan died, Cosimo favored the claims of Sforza, and wished to break off the Venetian alliance as no longer necessary. But this he was unable to do openly, owing to the feeling of the people, until Sforza's success in 1450, when Florence joined with Milan against Venice and Naples. Although this policy thus shortly stated may seem complicated and ineffective, the result in reality was to make Florence a very great power in Italy. The ally of France and a mediator in all questions of difficulty in the peninsula. At the close of our epoch, Cosimo de' Medici had still many years of life and power before him, and his history belongs largely to a later period. End of Section 18